on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg. And do you know what, Francis? Do you know who I've got right next to me? Oh, I've got one of my cats and she's purring. Let's get her on. Come here. Can you hear this? I can. It's a purr. Awesome. That's the, sound of, that's the global sound of happiness right there. They just <laughs> <laughs> finally managed to convince her to come on the podcast. <laughs> How has your week been? Because you've been really busy in your day job and a big announcement from uh, your part of the world this week. Tell us about it. That's right. So I assume that many people who listen to the podcast may recall that like record-breaking petition last year that was led by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, and it was calling for a Murdoch Royal Commission, a Royal Commission into the monopoly of the news media market that Rupert Murdoch holds. And so faithful listeners of the pod may recall that about two months ago I left my previous job to start up an organisation set up to run this campaign essentially, so like take it from a petition to a, an organisation and a big campaign. And hopefully many people listening have been receiving my weekly emails uh, saying, all right, this week we're calling this person or this week we're emailing this person, uh, you know, all the different campaign actions. But a lot of the strategy in the last two months since I've taken this job on has been centred around a Senate inquiry, which was set up uh, last year in response to this huge petition that was like looking at the issue basically, like looking at media diversity or more to the point lack of diversity in Australia. And this inquiry heard from the executive chairman of News Corp, Michael Miller, who was like, oh, no, there is no monopoly, <laughs> which is pretty funny. There was also a really brilliant moment. Well, I thought it was a very funny moment where this gentleman, Michael Miller, was raging about Facebook saying that like Facebook shouldn't have this much influence in Australian democracy, which I agree with, because it was owned by an American. And then <laughs> the, Sen- the Senate inquiry being like, right, um, remind us what Rupert Murdoch's citizenship is and him being like, oh, well, no, um, oh, it's different. Um, anyway, so this, this Senate, <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. The Senate inquiry has been running for a year. It's been very compelling if you're into this sort of thing. Anyway, the report was dropped yesterday and we have been hoping that the inquiry would recommend that Parliament should call a Royal Commission and, drumroll please, they did. (laughs) (laughs) The Senate, this inquiry has made a bold declaration that the way forward should be to call an inquiry with the powers of a royal commission, so it's a judicial inquiry, um, but the same power to call witnesses to um, that has like discoverable powers, that has independence from government. So that's really, really exciting and it means that this campaign that, you know, there's this petition but also like many people listen to the, listening to this pod, I imagine, have been like Murdoch watching for decades, right? Like ordinary people have been sounding the alarm about the interference in democracy and harm to communities and, you know, division and inflammatory reporting 
in many news court publications for a very long time. So like this has for a very long time been like community driven criticism and community driven calls for change. And so to have this Senate report from the Senate recommend that like, yeah, this is a really huge problem and it, it needs to have an inquiry with the powers of the Royal Commission is great. So it's a huge, a huge moment in the campaign that I'm very fortunate to have joined recently. So how do people make a contribution, Sal? Well, that's right. So off the back of the announcement, we Australians from Murdoch Royal Commission have launched a fighting fund. So it's basically a, a big fundraiser. So we can, I keep saying we, at the moment it's just me as a full-time staff member, <laughs> but I'm really hoping to hire a second staff member, which will, you know, double if not exponentially grow the impact we're already having. But yeah, so we, we've launched a big fundraiser set to build off the back of this recommendation and make sure we can power this campaign through to next year. And, and next year is going to be such an important year for these sorts of campaigns. So yeah, if people want to contribute, you can go to murdochroyalcommission.org.au slash fighting fund. And chip in $5, chip in $100, whatever you can afford. Um, and, and if you can't, like if money's tight and it often is at this time of year, if you want to share the link, that is also a really great way to contribute to this fund. We wish you all the best in this ongoing quest for some media diversity and accountability because God knows we need it. Someone who holds people to account is our next guest. It's the end of another crazy year, and Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU, has once again been the leading voice when it comes to representing the interests of workers across the country throughout the pandemic and everything that has come with it. She's been a regular on the podcast, so let's catch up with her once again. And it's great pleasure to welcome back to the pod, friend of the pod, Michelle O'Neill, President of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU. How the hell are you? How's your 2021 been? Do you want to tell us about it? Hi, Francis. Hi, Sally. <laughs> well, where do we start with this story? I was thinking that we got to this time last year and, of course, we all had well, most of us had a an idea that somehow 2021 was going to be really different <laughs> How from did 2020, that work out? and of, and that didn't happen. <laughs> so I, I I feel like for me a couple of things work wise, I just had to like centre on our job is to make sure that working people have all of the information, support, mm -hmm. everything they need to stay safe, that we need to make sure that their voice, their experience of the pandemic is heard and that the decisions that are made around what's happening for workers have them and their families and the community's safety and rights at its core. So I felt like I sort of just had to keep going back to that touch point. The voice of workers needs to be heard in this and how do we make sure people have good, accurate information, stay safe and are recognised for the amazing job that they've been doing over the last two years, like extraordinary efforts of working people to keep the country going in really, really tough circumstances. And then personally, you know, my dog got me through it, Francis, like Lola, those dog walks, they're a very good way of like bring you back down to Got to love your four-legged okay. friend in tough okay. times. Yeah. <laughs> Sally's got four-legged friends, but they're uh, rather precocious cats, aren't they? <laughs> 
They are. I can't believe we're, what, three minutes, in, two minutes into this chat and already <laughs> my cats. <laughs> He's harsh, um, Sally, harsh. <laughs> so, Michelle, no overseas holidays? Sort of like themed cruises for you this year? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. You know, I'm based in Melbourne, everybody. So <laughs> there was a, a little moment there in the middle of the year where I think I got to Sydney and Canberra a couple of times. And uh, I've been to Canberra once at the end of the year, but that's been it. Uh, yeah, I think everyone appreciates listening that that was just a little joke. Um, <laughs> and there has been not much travel. At all. Yeah, I managed to get out to regional Victoria. Well, not even regional. Went to Healesville, which is like an hour away, which was lovely. But I've really found during this year and last year, Michelle, that I have got to know my community, like my, in terms of like my proximal community, my neighbors and the local business owners. And, you know, people who help at the crossing, you know, help kids cross to, cross the street and all that a lot more. Have you found that as well? I have, Sally. I mean, both because of the work I do, I've been coming into the office as well as, of course, spending a lot time, more time in my local community as well. So both of those communities shrunk in, in all, all sorts of ways. So in the middle of Melbourne CBD, it became a much more uh, close-knit, intimate sort of community. Like the people on the streets all knew there was only a few of us here and it was the construction workers, the workers doing the cleaning and and a couple of cafes that kept doing takeaway and that was pretty much it uh, and a few people like myself that were coming in. So it was a very small community in the middle of a huge CBD and it got really personal, like we knew each other well, got to know each other well and similarly, you know, where I live, it was like – because there's this common connection about you're all going through something together, it's like there's all these conversations that you have that you would not otherwise have. And, of course, for working people and many people know I'm a unionist, so there was a lot of conversations about work, about masks, about how they were being treated, about hours, loss of jobs, all of that. So there was a lot of both personal and union conversations that Mm. happened. There's a lot of re-evaluation that's gone on in the last little while as well in terms of people stopping and thinking about what's important to them when it comes to their work, their life, you know, all of those things. Has a bit of that been happening for you as well since, you know, we've been uh, having plenty of time to contemplate uh, the way the world works? You know, one of the really nice things that happened for me over COVID, I've got four sisters and we don't all live in the same place. And we started back in 2020 pretty early in partly because one of my sisters wasn't well, that we did like a Zoom on a Sunday afternoon. And it doesn't go for long, but nearly every Sunday we've kept it up. And it's been great because a lot of the time we just laugh and, you know, tell each other stories of what's happening in our life. And it's been a really, really lovely thing. Uh, So it did make me, I mean, I love my sisters, but it made me value them differently, yeah. You know, a minute ago you were talking about having this touchstone in terms of your work and sort of always referring back to this touchstone of like putting working people at the heart of, I'm paraphrasing here, but like your work strategy and long-term and short-term plans and all the rest of it. That idea of having a cornerstone, did you find that in other areas of your life as well? 
I think there's a lot of crossover, to be honest, Sally. Like it's, (laughs) you know, I I believe passionately in what I do and I'm so lucky that that's what I get to do with my life and my working life. And so I don't have those sort of clear distinctions between the two really. So I feel like that combination of connecting with people that you love and my dog and then (laughs) just being able to sort of view what was happening through that prism of what did this mean for working people and what was our job in the midst of that for them and with them, that was it for me. You had a lifelong commitment, as you talked about, to working people, improving the circumstance of working people. But this has been a particularly hard time for for the people that you represent and that you're, you're passionate about. What has it taught you about the character of working people and how they have managed to navigate what has been, you know, for most, the most challenging couple of years in their life? It makes me immediately think about a woman I met who's a nurse called Linda in the middle of the two years. In fact, it was just after the Aged Care Royal Commission came out and we did have a moment in Canberra and she joined me with some other workers talking about what was happening in aged care. And she had an amazing story to tell about being one of the people that went into one of the private nursing homes here in Melbourne when COVID hit and it was a disaster like and her her harrowing story of what it was like going into that aged care facility finding the those residents in the state they were in because overnight all of the workers had been moved out and people had been left with nothing and she just had to work out you know they had no information about people's drugs requirements or eating requirements so and people were isolated and scared and her story was so moving and powerful about just being traumatised but getting the job done, like just how massive an effort that was for her and the others, healthcare workers that went into those places and really just saved people's lives and tried to do their very best in a really terrible circumstance. And I think about her often because I heard her tell her story to a lot of politicians and saw them, some of whom listened and were very moved by it and some of whom like it was, it's another meeting and that, you know, didn't even touch the edges of them. And I thought, how can you not understand that at the core of this, that we've got a problem where if we don't care outside of the pandemic, properly for people in aged care and if we don't realise that to have quality care for our elders means we've got to have quality jobs for the people who work to care for them, then, you know, we are missing so much as a society about what we need to be doing. There was a moment at the beginning of this year, roughly, how does time work? Nobody knows anymore. But I remember uh, it was sort of like Delta was about to be a big thing in Australia and the Morrison government had made all these promises about being the front of the queue for vaccines and everyone's, you know, priority groups, 1A, like everyone's going to be vaccinated. And then there was these weeks here in Melbourne where Delta was well and truly taking hold in the communities and it was revealed that all these residents in aged care facilities still hadn't been vaccinated. And then there were sort of some courageous health professionals, I'm thinking particularly of a young nurse who worked at an aged care centre who spoke out to the ABC and he was saying, this young nurse, saying like, we're so frightened, we can't get an answer on when these vaccines are coming. 
And it was this terrible deja vu, right, of exactly what had happened the year previously with all these, the workers becoming infected and then being laid off and then new workers being brought in without any talk, you know, just this another failure of aged care um, home management by the federal government. And I wondered if, like, thinking about the vaccine stroll out, did you see that reflected in other industries as well? The, the fact that the federal government really didn't think that it was a race to get workforces vaccinated on time and what the impacts of that was? Sally, this is the great public policy crime of this government that they did not do what they needed to do to make sure that we could vaccinate people quickly enough and fairly enough. And both are important because as much as people say otherwise, the pandemic doesn't treat and didn't treat everybody the same. And so for the workers that you're talking about, those workers who literally are on the front line, and I'm thinking of healthcare workers, aged care workers, disability support workers, workers in refuges for women and young people, those workers, they didn't stop going to work. You know, they they didn't have the option of saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to stay home. They had to go out into the community. They had to spend time with people who are really vulnerable. So to not only fail to deliver vaccines quickly and effectively and fairly to those workers and to the people that they were caring for, but to actually lie to them about how it was going to happen and when it was going to happen and then just not do it because they were told that they were going to be the priority, as were, of course, First Nations people, you know, that people who were told, we understand who's vulnerable, we understand who needs to be on the priority list, we're going to make sure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their communities get access to vaccines, we're going to make sure aged care, disability care, we heard all those promises, but there was no substance. It just was a lie. And so then... To, to have that growing realisation for the workers in those sectors and for the people in those communities that they'd been abandoned and that, in fact, they were well down the list was shocking and so insulting you know, for people that they were treated that way and not only not given what was needed in terms of vaccinations but also just given wrong information. And this isn't over yet because we still don't have a sovereign pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity to make our own vaccines. Now, the AstraZeneca production has been happening, but that's looked like it's in the process of uh, winding down. But when it comes to mRNA vaccines, which are going to be the cornerstone of all of our response to pandemics like this in the future, the governments keep promising to invest in capacity building and, and actually manufacturing onshore, but it hasn't done it yet. No, you know, it's, it's another example of talk, cheap talk, and just no follow-up action, which is what you know, Scott Morrison and this government are now famous for, yeah. famous for, you know, and we're infamous for. And you think again of the sort of neglect of the manufacturing, not just neglect of the manufacturing industry, in fact, deliberate decisions to abandon the manufacturing industry that this government and not only this government, had done. Um, and then to suddenly realise we're in a pandemic and that leaves us vulnerable because we don't have all this capacity locally to make what we need. And that was some obvious things when you think pandemic, like PPE and masks and vaccines and medicines. But 
there was also a whole lot of other things where, you know, food uh, that we needed that we were really reliant on offshore production of, a range of equipment that we needed to keep a whole lot of other jobs and the power on and the water flow, all these other cogs in the supply chain that we just had never contemplated what would happen if we could no longer access them. And it was really disastrous for lots of people. Sticking with manufacturing, and I want to like look forward for a minute here. It would have been it would have been end of last week. The ALP finally unveiled their new climate change policy. You know, policy to address climate change with a forty three percent emissions reduction target by twenty thirty. And so, you know, this is a bit of a bit of a shift, a great shift in my opinion to the Morrisons, like, uh, we'll just figure it out and try to get there by 2050. Um, but the Labor Party are talking about, like, new green economy, um, huge opportunities. Do you see a future for Australian manufacturing in this proposal? Oh, we've got such a exciting possible future to grow manufacturing in Australia if we get this right. We released a report a few months ago that we actually did with some interesting other organisations. It was the ACTU, the Business Council of Australia, the Australia Conservation Foundation and the World Wildlife Fund and we came together and did a report about clean energy exports and jobs and it found that if we get the rights investment and settings in place, then we can create 395,000 new jobs in clean energy export jobs between now and 2040, which is just an extraordinary number. And a whole lot of those are manufacturing jobs because uh, green steel, for example, the opportunity for us to be able to get it right to manufacture green steel in Australia or battery manufacturing. Again, we've got lots of the source minerals that we can actually move into new mining operations to get many of the minerals that are needed in a clean energy future. But uh, we can also make sure that we don't just export those, that we actually manufacture, you know, we add value to them here and manufacture what we need to be able to maximise the jobs here in Australia out of this big change, massive change that the world's going through and that we're going through too. One of the important things about that, though, is that we've got to think about the quality of jobs that we're creating. Like it's not just, oh, you know, I, I hear people say, oh, don't worry about your job in this fossil fuel intensive industry. There'll be a job for you in the future. Well, that's not a good enough answer because unions and workers in those industries have fought for generations about safety and wages and conditions to make those good quality jobs. And we've got to make sure the jobs of the future are uh, secure jobs, jobs that are really well paid, jobs that are safe and unionised jobs. And that's a really important part of this. We've had some bad examples of, you know, some of the jobs in, for example, in renewable energy in uh, some of the wind farms, construction and the like have been you know, some pretty notorious stories about short-term visa workers who have been exploited and underpaid come in to do that work, not thinking through you know, the, the, those companies thinking more about, oh, we've got to keep the neighbour on side uh, about the sort of sound of the turbine than thinking 
part of our responsibility is how we actually not just make sure the communities are with us, but that the jobs that are being created are really good quality jobs. So that it can happen, Sally, but as you can hear, what I'm saying is that it doesn't happen by chance. We've got to have the right commitments, right policy, right government intervention, right investment um, to make sure we get really good quality jobs from this. But it's exciting, that possibility. Can I ask you about the year that it's been for women and women workers? It's been... It's been a really confronting year for a lot of women to hear the stories of Brittany Higgins and others who made very public statements and put themselves up front to hold men to account for their behaviour. And it's gone from the start of the year right to the end. We saw it again in Parliament the other day and also in a policy setting as well. I mean, the government had promised to change uh, and introduce legislation to abolish the $450 a superannuation guarantee, which is really important for a lot of women who work in part-time or casual work because of their work-life balance situation. Still hasn't done it. So have we made any progress at all on this issue given how irrefutable the proof is that there are serious structural problems and that men in particular need to lift their game and it's men predominantly in charge of this government who can make the decisions that might actually shift the needle on this. Sometimes I think about the fact that it's uh, it was only in March that March we had those year. marches for justice this year and I can't believe that it was just this year and it has, has been a massive year for the courage of women speaking up, stepping out in ways that I just fill me with awe, really, in terms of uh, some of those particularly young women who've just been trailblazing in their capacity to just withstand the pressure and to come out and tell their story because they understood it was not just their story. Mm. It's actually every woman's story. And, And that's been a great and inspiring part of the year seeing that and, of course, acknowledging that it's not just the women, mainly white women, who get a platform to do that. There's many other women who are as courageous and uh, and who are stepping up and small acts of courage all over the country every day around this that uh, I see and that is fantastic. But the answer as to whether the government has actually listened and done anything is no. No, they haven't. And this, you know, it, it is disgraceful that we've come to the end of 2021 and that has all happened but their response has been minuscule weak ineffectual like you think of those 55 recommendations from respect at work and then the the ones that they put to into law were the easiest ones and the least effective in terms of fundamental change so what women need And all workers need is for employers to have an obligation to prevent sexual harassment, not just deal with the fallout of it, not just deal with how you deal with the complaint. And instead, they didn't do that, didn't change the law. And your example, the $450 threshold for super. So at the moment, if you earn less than $450 a month, you don't get superannuation. And this is one of the reasons women retire with half the super of men in Australia because they have breaks in employment and more likely to be in casual and insecure jobs. It's We've been campaigning for years to get rid of the threshold. Finally, we won the government saying, yes, we're going to do it. But then they had the opportunity in that last two sitting weeks in Parliament, they did nothing. Again, all talk, no action. You say they did nothing in that final week, but they did make time to debate 
a piece of legislation about introducing new ways to discriminate against gay people. So I don't know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> That's true. a fair assessment, Michelle. No, no. <laughs> yeah, of course, all, it, it is, Sally, you're right. It is all about priorities, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, let, let's make it a priority to work out ways that we can create a hierarchy of discrimination in the country and somehow say that, you know, people are going to be able to get away with prejudice and discrimination, being being able to justify it based on another belief that they don't want to get discriminated against. I mean, it's a mad mm. story. And don't forget they also, before they were doing the superannuation threshold, were looking to try and discriminate against people who might not have IDs when they went to vote. Oh, so yeah. They no, had that as a priority Of course, let's make it harder to vote. Like, yeah. you know, great democracy here. Thank goodness we stopped that in its tracks, but don't, you know, it'll come back if they get elected again. And, of course, you know, we see in the education system, the health system all the time, workers that are discriminated against because of their sexuality and to think that there's a bit of legislation they want to pursue that will actually entrench that is completely unacceptable. Michelle, I know you're busy and we've got to let you go, but I just want to finish by asking 2022 there's an election on the horizon. So in terms of workers and what the key issue is going to be in the election, do you think that we're at a point now where secure jobs is going to be an election decider? The people through the pandemic have learnt what insecure work looks like and when it disappears, how, how uh, stressful and challenging life can be, that this is going to be where this election could be won and lost. I think it's such a key issue for the election and the electorate, Francis. This is something that there's not one worker, if it's not them directly, it's their family and friends that are not really impacted by the fact that we have a pandemic of insecure work in Australia. And we had it before COVID, but it's got worse and it impacts on every element of your life. It's not just, you know, the fact that you don't know that you're going to have a job in a year's time. It's the literally don't know your hours are going to work week to week. You don't know the wage you're going to have you know, month to month or day to day, can't plan your life, can't look after your kids, can't go on a holiday, can't buy a house, can't get into a rental agreement, you know the list. And so I think this is such a fundamental issue about justice and rights and about the sort of country we want to be. And we should be able to have a country, be a country where people have secure jobs. And what people have learned is when the government wants to act, when Scott Morrison decides it's in his interest to act. When they want to act, they can and put in place changes that affect everyone. You think of some of the big changes that happened in the pandemic. We know government can do this. They can impact secure jobs, can change the legislation needed to make sure people have rights to secure jobs and all of the things that flow from that. We're going to make sure that it's something that is an election issue because we don't have to have a country that is going in the wrong direction on this. We can change the the direction of this and make sure working people have secure jobs they can count on. Michelle O'Neill, have a wonderful, restful, festive period with Lola and your sisters and everybody. And thank you so much for once again being on the job. Thanks a lot, Francis and Sally. And I hope you both get some recovery time and get to have a bit of fun as well. Well, it's definitely on the agenda, isn't it, Sally? <laughs> it definitely is. Thanks, Michelle. See ya. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Michelle O'Neill, the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, with us here on the job as she uh, heads towards a well-earned holiday. Fascinating conversation, Sally, and uh, it was just a reminder of just how much has gone on this year, good and uh, and also really tough and bad. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Michelle mentioned, among other things, she mentioned the Women's March, uh, the Women's Marches around the country earlier this year. And so I was at the Canberra March supporting some women who'd started a petition with change.org and was there, you know, doing their petition thing. But so I was in Canberra and Michelle spoke at the march. It was so moving and such an incredible speech. And I remember like at the time coming on the pod and talking about that march and how it really felt different. Mm. Like it, it really felt like there was something in the air and I've, I have been to a lot of marches. <laughs> and um, when Parliament wrapped up last week, I was reflecting, I was ha- having a big think about the 12 months that had come before it in terms of women's rights, women's safety and women calling men to account. And I was thinking about how so this whole thing in Parliament and like parliamentary sexual harassment and the conversations around treatment of women in Parliament started around this time last year when former Liberal staffer Rochelle Miller, Mm. she spoke about a consensual affair with um, Education Minister Alan Tudge as part of the ABC Four Corners piece called Inside the Canberra Bubble. And that episode talked about um, the the bad behaviour of many men in the building. And so this woman, Rochelle Miller, sort of talked about this consensual affair she had with the education minister, but it referred to the power and balance and referred to sort of generalised bad behaviour. And then so, so Rochelle Miller speaks out and then a month or so later, Grace Tame is named Australian of the Year and she speaks out powerfully around, you know, the issues of grooming and uh, child sexual assault and um, she, she does this call to arms when she accepts her speech and she says, so, like, let's raise our voices, women. And then not long after that, Brittany Higgins comes forward and alleges that she was sexually assaulted within the halls of parliament. And so Brittany says she felt inspired to come forward because Rochelle spoke out and then Grace Tame sp- spoke out. And so, so Brittany speaks out and then... Shortly after that, a young woman called Chanel Contos, inspired by Brittany, inspired by Grace, inspired by Rochelle, pulls together the stories of high school students talking about the sexism and harassment they faced in high school, you know, as as kids. And then following all the stories from Chanel Contos, Brittany Higgins, Grace Tame, Rochelle Miller, then there's further allegations made against the Attorney General from a woman who had since passed away. And so her friends, emboldened by all these powerful disclosures and the way the public was rallying around the women making these disclosures and allegations, come forward with these allegations against former Attorney General Christian Porter. Then we see these women's marches where Michelle spoke, among others. Many people remember this, but what I'm trying to demonstrate is this sort of snowballing effect of when one woman speaks up, it empowers another woman to speak out and then another woman to speak out. And the year has bookended quite poetically, I think, last week with the final week of parliament when Rochelle Miller came forward again and held a press conference Mm -hmm. where she alleged that actually the consensual affair with Education Minister Alan Tudge had also been emotionally abusive and in one instance physically abusive. Now, 
Alan Tudge completely denies that allegation. He says it's it's rubbish. But when Rochelle came forward and, and gave that extra detail to her story, she said that she was inspired by Brittany Higgins, who had been inspired by her the year before. And that final week of Parliament, we saw Christian Porter resign because he, well, he, he says that he's been treated unfairly. I'll let listeners decide for themselves whether they think that is the case or not, whether having credible allegations reported on by the media is unfair treatment. So Christian Porter resigns after fighting those allegations or fighting the calls for his resignation for a year. And when Rochelle Miller comes forward and makes her new allegations, the Prime Minister stood down Alan Tudge, the Education Minister, pending an an investigation. I think that is profound because this time last year when accusations were made at Christian Porter, at Alan Tudge, at the behaviour of men across the parliament, Scott Morrison blew it off. He either didn't get it, he didn't care, he wasn't interested in it. And now a year later, these new accusations against the minister, which he denies, the Prime Minister has acted very quickly on them, like standing up an investigation and standing down the minister. Now, my, my point of all this is I don't know if Scott Morrison and the Australian government have changed their values or even if they've changed their opinions. But what they have, I think, shown us in this past week of the final week of Parliament with the Jenkins report, with Christian Porter resigning, with Alan Tudge being stood down pending an inquiry, is that the government now realise that this is a really serious issue that women across Australia take very seriously. And if Scott Morrison is taking these steps purely for votes, fine. Like, I don't care. (laughs) I think it is a sign of progress that the most powerful men in the country think that being more respectful towards women is good for them. Like, I'm, I'm happy with that outcome. So I just wanted to share that reflection at the end of this year and think about that progress as I see it. It's been extraordinary. It really has, particularly as you lay it out in all uh, its long and difficult detail. Thank you very much, Sally. Have a wonderful, restful, festive period. You've earned a long break and a sleep in and a cuddle with the cats. And uh, (laughs) we'll catch you on the job again in 2021. Uh, I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Francis. And you have a lovely break too. 